And that's where we are with 5G. It, it's a very promising technology at a number of different levels. You're listening to episode 299 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. As the conversation about 5G continues to grow, it's important to consider the reality of the technology and not get caught up in the marketing. We asked Eric Lampland, founder and principal of the consulting firm Lookout Point Communications, to join us this week. Eric has visited us several other times to talk about technical issues and matters communities should consider when exploring ways to improve connectivity. Christopher and Eric were presenting at the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities Telecommunications Conference and took a few minutes to talk about the technology behind 5G and how it differs from current wireless networks. Christopher and Eric also take time to address some of the hype around claims that 5G will solve the problems of rural connectivity. Eric also answers some of Chris's questions about new passive optical networking developments. This is one of our podcasts that focuses on technology rather than policy or specific community, so geeks in the audience will really appreciate the conversation. Check out our other podcasts with Eric, episodes 80 on indirect cost savings, 128 on open access challenges, and 246 on feasibility studies. Now here's Christopher with Eric Lampland. What'd you have for breakfast, Eric? <laughs> I didn't have breakfast. Really? No breakfast? No breakfast. I had donuts. I don't know which one of us did better. <laughs> oh, you know, and you brought one to my my room. I did. Your room. In, yeah. The and, room in which I invented you to present with me. <laughs> and Exactly. And it and, and you didn't bring me a donut, so I couldn't have had any breakfast. That's that's true. I did not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there there it is. This is Chris Mitchell with a this is a this is going to be a, an open that we keep, I think, because this is pretty important stuff. How Eric and I uh, did not have breakfast, and it was my <laughs> fault that Eric did not have breakfast, as we are here at the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities uh, Conference, uh, the Telecommunications Conference, once again. Welcome back, Eric. Thank you, Chris. Eric Lamplin is the founder and principal of Lookout Point Communications, a veteran of our show. And this is the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Just trying something a little different here. We're on episode 299 as we head toward 300, and maybe we should have a different intro for once. Well, we'll be interested to see that. <laughs> We're going to be talking today about two things that Eric knows quite a bit about. In fact, we presented this morning on it, and that is what is the future of 5G, This all this 5G wireless stuff that we're talking about. And the other is what's the next generation of, uh, of PON, the passive optical networking that most of the municipal networks that uh, have built fiber networks are using. So are you excited to talk about that? Both good areas. Yes. Um, but we're going to start, I think, with a with a, just a brief introduction, um, which is the same thing I said this morning, and I, I think I've said it a number of times, and that's that when I started working with communities on, in building networks and studying what was happening, um, some people suggested to me that I was wasting my time on this fiber thing because Wi-Fi was clearly going to stomp all over it. We wouldn't need a wireline anymore. Wireless was the future. And then uh, Wi-Fi had some very significant limitations, and WiMAX was coming along, and people said, you fool, stop thinking about fiber optics and these old-fashioned wires. WiMAX is going to do everything. It's going to be amazing. Just you wait. When that didn't happen, those same people said to me, 4G, LTE, very exciting, long-term evolution. You can't beat that. Don't need any more wires for sure now. Now we're talking about 5G. So, Eric, just very briefly, am I going to need to worry about wires in the future? 
Absolutely. All right. That's what I thought. <laughs> now, there's been so much talk around 5G, and there's so much hype around it. I want to be able to talk a little bit about what's actually happening from a, a slightly technical point of view in a way that everyone will be able to, to understand. But to get there, I think it helps to just quickly encapsulate what happened with 4G. So... What happened with 4G, and, and when I say 4G, I want to lump everything together between the marketing and the technology. Just spell it out for us, please. Well, to really understand 3G, 4G, or 5G, uh, we need to first look at the industry groups that come together and create these standards. And the one that has done this has been 3GPP. It's the 3G Partnership Project. And 3GPP obviously started with 3G, but later did 4G and now is doing 5G. And when it does that, it does that by issuing various releases which have technical content. Release 1 through 7 were really 3G. Release 8 was almost 4G. But really to get 4G, you had to get up to release 12, 13 perhaps, okay? When you say releases, you mean kind of like when we download software on our computer, it's like release 3, release 3.5, release 4, that sort of thing. Exactly. And in each one of those releases that you download to your systems, your software, they have new functions in them. And so the releases in 3GPP identify the new things that we do, right, and how to do them. Mm -hmm. and, and the G is for generation, right? The G is for generation. I'm sure some people were doubting themselves. <laughs> I know I was. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. The point about what happened to 4G is that as we sort of crept up on these latter uh, release levels of uh, from the 3GPP group, okay, uh, marketeers at the various different wireless companies started saying, well, we finally arrived at 4G. Right. I blame T-Mobile for getting that all started in that case. <laughs> well, I don't know about T-Mobile, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it, it was them. It seemed like all of the carriers piled on pretty quickly. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, but the promises that uh, were made about 4G really were made about later releases, 12, 13, and so on, okay? And the actual implementation that was in the field was more like version 8, 9, 10, okay? Right. So what, you're, what, what I remember happening was people would say, oh, 4G, you're going to have all this incredible stuff. And they're talking about like release 13 or 14, when in reality what's out there is, is release 8, 9 or so. Well said. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and we have the same phenomena happening with 5G now, uh, and their releases 15 and 16. And 15 is getting close to being resolved, okay? And 16, we're just beginning to understand what work elements should have to be in 16. But until we get to 16, we don't have the full impact of what people think of as 5G. And what's more, probably, is that a lot of the things that were actually being sold, if you pick up a newspaper or you read a, a popular news story about 5G, they're probably thinking about multiple releases down the row. Well, in fact, what we have today in the marketplace is we have a combination of experimentation that's going on in the carriers so they can learn what, what are the issues involved in millimeter waves and all of the techie stuff. Uh, and we have proprietary structures 
that are put out by individual companies that want to sell high-capacity wireless. Unfortunately, they're all calling that 5G, and in reality, none of it is. Okay? Right, and so there's, there's two separate things that have started to fall under the 5G umbrella. One is, as you were mentioning, these high-capacity fixed wireless services. Those are um, often gear that's so expensive, it doesn't really work for single-family homes on a, in a business plan, but may work for large apartment buildings, the sort of things that um, NetBlazer is doing, uh, Monkey Brains, and WebPass was doing before Google bought them and for some reason seems to be running away <laughs> with. Um, but but th- that's sort of one thing, and I think most of what... I think what you're thinking about what's going through the 3GPP standard, if I understand correctly, is more what the what will you be getting from AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and those guys. Well, that's true. But what's important about the fact that it's going through large-scale carriers and large-scale carriers worldwide as 3G presents its technology to what we call the International Telecommunications Union, part of the UN, is that those standards go worldwide. And the importance of that is that what you have working in the United States should also work in France, Mm -hmm. should also work in Singapore. Uh, More importantly, you have to have not only what the carriers are doing, but you also have to have the devices that we're carrying around recognize those same frequencies, those same standards, uh, or otherwise... You know, your Samsung or your Apple or your Motorola phone doesn't work with 5G if it doesn't have many antennas and so forth and so on. Right. So that's that's kind of, in a sense, what we're waiting for right now for 5G. Correct. And so just to, to sum up, we don't have the slides in front of us like the, the group did this morning. I have to say I had a lot of praise from folks who thought we did a really good job this morning. Good. So um, just to pat ourselves on the back briefly in front of this <laughs> podcast audience. Um, but the, the timeline here that we have, um, basically the release uh, 15 is coming, right? Yes. And that's going to be the first release for 5G. Correct. But that still has to go through all the standard setting process. And then once they're done setting the standard among the companies, then the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, has to ratify that and say, yeah, we all agree to it. Yes. And actually, um, we talk about that in three stages or three phases. And the first stage of this are actually the specifications about what we're trying to create. Okay. So... When we say millimeter waves, those are defined. When we say how much speed at a given antenna, that's a, a, def- a definition. And so on those definitions go. Okay, That portion of it deals with the radio access network. But behind the radio access network, you also need an architecture that actually moves data bits around and, and so forth and so on. And that is a different ITU group called the ITU-T, and that technology has has yet to be defined. Where the specifications for release 15 at uh, stage one or phase one at the ITU were just done in December. So that's a it's that's a sense of how this will not just get sped up because people are excited about it. Like there's no there's not going to be a 5G, a real 5G in 2018 or 2019 because these processes require time. They do. They require time and they require some learning as well. And in fact, some of the deployments that people hear about uh, such as Verizon going into Sacramento or T-Mobile talking about using 
uh, a different frequency nationwide. Um, are experiments on the part of the carriers whose purpose is to learn. You know, we, we haven't deployed an international network using millimeter waves, using this kind of capacity to various different uh, end devices and so forth. So engineers aren't <laughs> godlike. <laughs> they're, they're just the opposite of that. No, no, they come we, quite close. <laughs> we, we are known by being able to fix yesterday's failure. So I think one of the, the key questions here is, aside from the fact, let's ignore the innate desire in a market economy for the telecommunications companies to just want to advertise something new and exciting. Um, in, some, in some sense, it seems to me that you could just have release 15 and 16 be called 4G. I mean, it seems somewhat arbitrary. Is there really a difference that we're talking about in 5G beyond just faster service to my cell phone? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the the criteria for 5G, uh, as we now know it, um, is defined primarily by three individual use cases. And those use cases, one of those use cases is the one that you would g generally hear a great deal about, which is enhanced mobile broadband. Uh, so all of those claims for speed and, and whatnot um, are in that group. But we also know that right now we need to address, and the wireless people are wanting to address, a world called Internet of Things, or better said, machine-to-machine -machine communications. So there is another set of criteria in 5G uh, that are referred to as enhanced machine-type communications. I don't understand why, for this machine, massive machine-type communications, why can't we just put a lot more devices on 4G? What do we need to change? I mean, I think a lot of us might just intuitively think, well, just put more machines on. If we need more antennas or whatever, fine. Like, why does, why does something major need to change to have more machines talking to each other? There are a couple of different reasons for that. Uh, the easy one to understand is there are different revenue sources for the carriers. And so there needs to be a way of distinguishing that kind of traffic from some other kind of traffic. Aha, billing relationships. This is the key. This is, <laughs> this is what makes networks complicated. Yeah. <laughs> In the end result, a lot of it is about revenue. Now, the second thing about machine communications is that quite a large number of machine-type communications do not require very much bandwidth. And so... If you allocated a particular set of frequencies and capacities to uh, the machine communications that you uh, allocated to a mobile phone, you may be wasting a great deal of that uh, overall capacity of that radio. Sure. If I dumped 100 environmental sensors on a single access point, the access point is thinking, oh, well, maybe I need to be thinking about 10 megabits per per thing, per unit that's connected. And in fact, it may only need 300 kilobits. Exactly. Exactly. The same. That's exactly the right idea. Different machines require different properties. So you may have some machines that need 300. You may have some machines that need 3,000. Okay. You may have machines that need a best effort service, and you may have machines that need some fairly low latency and certainly high reliability issues. Okay. 
And that's that latency issue is and reliability issue is the third piece. Then just to recap, because I sort of waylaid you on the the machine to machine, but the three use cases are the first one is enhanced mobile broadband, faster services to our cell phones. The second is what we were just talking about, the machine to machine communications. And the third one is the most exciting one. Uh, and that third one is called ultra low latency reliable communications. Okay. Uh, and it's it's not common that we get a five-letter acronym, but that's what it is, right? Ulk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you'd pronounce it. Ulk. <laughs> but in that particular area, we are talking about communication responses that have a latency of under of at or under one one millisecond, uh, and that's extraordinarily fast in comparison today's to today's standards. Right. One of the things that gamers on wired networks really care about is their ping, their latency. And if they're down at like 15, 20 milliseconds, they're really happy. You're talking about really faster than that. Really faster than that. Even in the 5G enhanced mobile broadband, uh, we're shooting for a latency target of four milliseconds. But for some applications, and particularly applications dealing with cars, Okay. We're down into these very low latency areas because as you drive along any any highway now and various different cell towers along the way, you get handed off from one tower to the next tower. Well, depending upon how fast you drive and whether or not it's a Tesla or whatever the case may be, you really want that response to be fairly quick and you don't want to have to deal with all the timing issues dealing with handoffs. But there are lots of other reasons to have Low, low latency. That's just one example of. Right. But I think that gives a sense of how people think of 5G. I think it's, it's intuitive to think, oh, it's just about faster speeds, but it's not. It's really about moving us into a new world. Yes. And yet we will still need wires in this world. <laughs> well, in fact, the, the specifications that were done in December uh, require that a given wireless access point okay, has capacity of 20 gigabits per second that supports that particular access point. And the only thing that does that today is fiber. So we've got fiber to those wireless antennas. So the last thing I want to talk about with 5G is this thing called spectral efficiency. And this, <laughs> this I think, deals with, with a very important issue, which is that this sort of gets back to this issue of 5G is going to solve everything. And these claims that are made by lobbyists to state le legislators to the FCC, these lobbyists for the wireless companies want us to believe that 5G will solve every problem that we have, yes. that it is going to be amazing in rural areas. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, break through any any RF challenges that we have today. Um, so what is spectral efficiency and how does it fit into all of this? Well, spectral efficiency really refers to the carrying capacity of a given network. So we refer to the frequencies on spectrum as some multiple of hertz, a hertz being a, a cycle, um, uh, and the, the greater number of cycles you have, the higher the frequency is. So currently, when you think in terms of Wi-Fi uh, that most people are familiar with, you have 2.4 billion or 2.4 gigahertz uh, frequency is the slow one, and 5 gigahertz frequency is the fast one. 
With 5G, we're in millimeter ranges. So your the two favored uh, ones are 29 gigahertz, 29 billion hertz, uh, or above, uh, something in the range of 20 to 100 gigahertz. The question is, within that particular frequency range, if I carve out 100 megahertz or a half a billion megahertz and I'm on a frequency of, of 29 gigahertz, let's say, 29 to 29.5, okay, then I have that kind of range. And if my spectral efficiency on a given hertz, okay, is 30 bits per hertz, which is the target overall, okay, then I'd have that, that 500 times 30, and I'd have that many bits per second across the wire. So spectral efficiency times the bandwidth allocation is equal to the bits delivered. Right. And so, I mean, it's easier when you're looking at the equation. But I think one of the, one of the keys is that it's somewhat intuitive is that if your spectral efficiency is really good, you're at 30 bits per hertz. And if it's not, then you're lower, let's say 10 bits per hertz. Yes. And that means that you're roughly one third the capacity or worse. That's correct. Okay. And so the targets that people talk about for some of those environments would include in-house, in-home uh, hotspots, uh, and the target for that is nine, spec- the spectral efficiency of nine, so a third of the 30, if you will, okay? I'm a bit surprised to hear that it's just nine because, I mean, is, is the 30 just perfect laboratory conditions then, and we, in real world, we don't, we don't get to that? Or? Uh, you can think of it that way. Okay. Uh, um, there are other things that happen within a house that is going to knock down your efficiency of getting it through. The most common thing that knocks down spectral efficiency is distance. The more distance you have, the less bits per second you're going to deliver at that far end point. I'm glad that won't be a problem in rural areas. (laughs) (laughs) So in rural areas, the spectral efficiency that is targeted is 3.3 bits per hertz. Right. So if you thought if you thought my household was bad at, at 30% of the of the 30, boy, now you're looking at 10%. Yes, exactly. Rough. If if the calculation at 30 bits per hertz uh delivered to you a gigabit, okay? Then the same signal in a rural environment should get you maybe uh something like 100 meg, okay? Mm-hmm. But in truth, there is very little that is expected to be in the gigabit range on 5G. In fact, the target for end users is 100 megabits. Mm-hmm. So it's more like if it was 100 megabits on the 30 bits per hertz, and it would be something in the area of about 10 megabits by the time you delivered in a rural environment. Well, and, and one of the things that I would guess, and I don't, I wonder if the 3.3 figure for spectral efficiency takes into account, is that you know, it's it's one thing to have to go through trees and other obstacles. It's another thing to have to go to distance. But if you're going a long distance and hitting obstacles, boy, you're in a world of hurt. Is that that's that's why it's three point three, or is that something that we would expect it for some people to be much worse? No, I think that those are good things to think about. You know, how that signal travels and through what it travels affects its efficiency. 
what I'm hearing is that 5G might not be the savior that some self-interested people want to claim that it is. Yeah. Although it is, it is worth noting that it is, as we've discussed here, important. It is necessary. And we're excited about it. Yeah. But we just don't want to be unrealistically, you know, um, just uh, hyping a bubble. Well, and, and that's where we are with 5G. It, it's a very promising technology at a number of different levels. We will need it if or your uh, urban transportation vehicle is an electric self-driving car that uses vehicle-to-everything uh, communications, which is 5G, and you drive it from a major metropolitan area down into a far rural area, it's going to be a question of whether or not that car is actually working properly. Sure. I have to say, I have my doubts about some of the stuff with the electric cars. I think the low latency was going to be all kinds of things that are important. Yes. I think that when we look at security and other things, I actually think that the vehicle, the vehicle, low latency stuff will turn out to be less important. I think of it in some ways as in the, in the 80s, when computer programmers and computer aficionados wanted to explain to people why computers were so exciting, they would say, well, in the future, you could store your recipes on them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things. And, and, and there's all kinds of ways. Ways. For people who are not watching, I may have just killed Eric. <laughs> oh, um, that's because, where my recipes are. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all these things that we can do. I think that there, are, when we have ultra low frequency networks, we will find all kinds of ways to use them. Hmm. I'm just not convinced it's going to be the cars, in part because um, I don't want a car that falls apart if the radio system stops working. <laughs> So anyway, that's the example Eric's been using. I've been biting my tongue and now I just I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, while I have you here um, sequestered in Des Moines, um, I, I want to ask one other thing, which is, um, you know, we talked about 5G and how it's uh, is very exciting and what the realistic course of it is. But there's also something else, and you've done a lot of presentations on this, and that's the next generation of passive optical networking or PON, which is, you know, it's how Chattanooga's network works. It's how the majority of fiber to the home in the country works. Um, this is not taking sides among those active Ethernet partisans, but I just want to get a sense of what's next for PONs that, that we should care about. Well, there are really two protocols coming forward. Uh, one is referred to as XGS-PON, and XGS-PON is 10 gigabits down to some end device, uh, splitter typically, and uh, 10 gigabits back. So that compares to G-PON, which is 2.5 gig down and 1.2 gig back. Okay. Right. And so I, as you said, that was to the splitter. So yes. and there's some sort of magic wizardry we don't have to go into. I shouldn't <laughs> say magic wizardry around an engineer, but there's some kind of technology <laughs> that, um, that is for, for, for instance, uh, if you're getting a, a gigabit network service from uh, a passive optical network, really you're sharing 2.4 gigs with your neighbors, but it's arranged in such a way that you can get a, a gigabit peak if you need it. Correct. And so now we're going to be seeing with this with this particular standard, this one uh, XGS PON. So XGS PON is 10 gigabits in both directions. It's okay. symmetrical. Uh, and the, the other standard is called Next Generation PON 2, NG PON 2. Okay? And it is made up of wavelengths, each being 10 gigabits in both directions. So because it's made up by wavelengths, and the implementations we're seeing use four wavelengths 
but the standard needs uh, allows up to eight. Okay, if those four wavelengths all go to a singular endpoint, that particular endpoint would be receiving forty gigabits. Wow! So knock your socks off. Knock your socks off. Yeah, and so if you're a company on a PON network, that's really not an unrealistic speed mm -hmm. uh, in some cases. But there are all sorts of things that you can do with NGPON2, such as uh, if you're receiving a given wavelength, we'll call it red, okay, and red fails, maybe you just turn up blue and you have that service back. Uh, so you can tune those up from... Uh, the same OLT or separate OLTs and so forth and so on. Uh, so there's flexibility there. The difference is that XGSPON is implemented today primarily because it's a stable 10 gig uh, laser involved. Okay, With uh, NGPON2, you have to have tunable lasers. So you turn to that red wave or the blue wave or the green wave or whatever. And those are a bit more expensive these days. Is that is that a way of, I think in some ways, the holy grail for you and I, as we think about a world we'd want to live in, we would have one physical connection to our home, um, maybe, maybe a choice in that. But the point would be that we would have multiple services available over at least one connection to our home. Right now, it seems like the way networks are designed, if you did that, your services could compete with each other or kind of fight with each other. This technology seems like you might be able to have a single ISP that allows multiple services to you that aren't even aware of each other. You could try that with NGPON2. Um, the bigger motivations for NGPON2 are really uh, motivations that deal with what is that end device we're trying to get to. Is that a commercial entity? Is that possibly um, a cellular antenna? For example, we were talking in 5G about requiring a 20-gig path from the antenna down. Well, that's two NGPON2 wavelengths. Mm -hmm. One of the goals with NGPON2 is to be able to develop a network uh, that supports all of the services that we're trying to deliver, whether they happen to be wireless services, data center to data center services, home services, commercial services, and the like. Also, there's a business case, which is in an excessively partisan country, you could tell someone, I'm only delivering you service on the red wavelength. <laughs> and to a more liberal person, you could say, I'm only going to use the blue wavelength. And for those people in the middle, you can say, look, you could use both red and blue and get yourself some purple. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to do that, but yeah, it's an idea. It'll be an interesting use case to kick around. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on. I think this might be the most entertaining of the in-depth technical episodes that we've done. Well, thanks, Chris. It's good talking to you. I really appreciate uh, you spending the time to come up and, and talk about this after we already did it this morning. And, <laughs> and I definitely want to thank uh, Curtis Dean down here for putting together this show um, at the IAMU um, and recommend that folks look at it for next year. It's, a, it's an event in Des Moines. It's easy to get to. It's a great hotel year after year. It's a good small conference where you can talk to people that are actually doing stuff. I, I really like this event. So, so thanks for that. That was Christopher with Eric Lampland from Lookout Point Communications. For more on his firm, check out lookoutpt.com. 
We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 299 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. (laughs) 